Get ready for a one-of-a-kind experience. Welcome, welcome to the Starter Zone, your home for the weekly news from around the world. Your host for this journey, Amanda. All right, who made Hellboy mad? She's going to bring you everything you need to hear about entertainment, gaming, and maybe just a little bit bizarre. Hold tight, because here she comes. Aw, thank you, Raven, for that warm, warm welcome. Well, hello there, my friends. Good day to you all, and welcome to the Starter Zone. I am your guide, Amanda, and it is time to bring you the headlines from all of the entertainment news sources. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about Disney's issues and what Bob Iger has to say. Hollywood has shut down. The FTC boss is facing Congress. Bungie won a lawsuit and more. Saddle up, everybody. Let's go. So I know we've been talking at length about the challenges that Disney has been facing. And there's just so many stories coming out, I guess, because Disney was considered the big juggernaut of the entertainment industry for so long. And now with the way things are changing, it's they're not as powerful as they used to be Their Their name doesn't carry that same golden essence that they used to. They've been dealing with a lot of declining ticket sales among increased pricing for movies and for the parks. Not so stellar reviews on their latest movie offerings, which shows in their box office returns, among other issues. But the reason behind the decline has really just been hard to pinpoint. There's so many things that you can blame, but it's not really just one thing that's causing the problem. But Bob Iger, Disney's CEO, has an idea. And he's placing the blame on Disney+. Plus. So Iger is essentially citing the studio's output increase for Disney+, Plus as one of the reasons for, quote, some disappointments as of late. So he spoke to CNBC's Bob Faber at the Sun Valley Conference, and Iger admitted to the studio that they screwed up, that they gave the audience expectations by offering so much streaming content. And the negative impact of that has been commercial disappointments in the theaters, be it whether it was Ant-Man and Quantumania, not even reaching 500 million worldwide, by the way, or the disappointing openings for such what they call summer tent poles, Elemental, and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Now, I had to learn something. I keep coming across this word tent pole, tent pole. What is a tent pole outside of, you know, camping? What's it mean in regards to the movies? Well, it's a movie that is expected to be very successful and therefore be able to fund a range of related products or movies, you know, like keeping up the tent of prosperity. So anyway, now you know. Iyer went on to say that there have been some disappointments. We would have liked some of our more recent releases to perform better. It's reflective not as a problem from a personnel perspective, but I think in our zeal to basically grow our content significantly to serve mostly our streaming offerings, 
we ended up taxing our people way beyond in terms of their time and their focus, way beyond where they had been. Marvel's a great example of that. They had not been in the TV business at any significant level. So not only did they increase their movie output, but they ended up making a number of television series, and frankly, it diluted focus and attention. That is, I think, more of the cause than anything, unquote. Now, addressing the poor box office performance of Pixar's Elemental, Bob Iger cited the studio's decision to put three Pixar movies on Disney Plus in a row during the pandemic. Soul, Luca, and Turning Red all skipped the theaters and went straight to streaming. Lightyear and Elemental, the two Pixar films that went exclusively to theaters afterwards, just flopped. Now, Peter Docter, Pixar's creative chief officer, did share a similar sentiment with Variety magazine last month. He called the studio's decision to put the three Pixar films on Disney Plus a mixed blessing because we've trained the audiences that these films will be available for you on Disney Plus. And it's way more expensive for a family of four to go to a theater when they know they could just, you know, wait and it'll come out on the platform, end quote. Absolutely, uh, positively true. I have been to so many more matinees because I don't want to pay full price to go during primetime ticket season. I'm going to go when it's cheaper for me or wait because it's much more convenient than sitting in line. I honestly am starting to see a trend that the times of waiting in line at 2 o'clock in the morning to go see a movie, maybe in the past, that may be just one of those grandpa stories back in my day. There remains to be seen, but we're still recovering from the pandemic where we're still trying to get back to, quote, normal. And so we haven't seen a blockbuster movie just yet come out. That's going to spur that kind of behavior. Back in March, following the box office flop of Quantumania, Iger touted the newness as something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe needs in order to re-strengthen its box office appeal. He said, quote, sequels typically worked well for us. Do you need a third or a fourth movie, for instance, or is it time to turn to other characters? There's nothing in any way inherently off in terms of the Marvel brand. I think we just have to look at what characters and what stories that we're mining. And you look at the trajectory of Marvel over the next five years, you'll see a lot of newness. We're going to turn back to the, Aven- the Avengers franchise, but a whole different set of Avengers. Do we really need more Avengers stories? I mean, I don't know. They really did cap it off in a good way. You killed off some popular characters. All right, so we have some new Avengers. But the, let's be realistic. When Avengers finally finished, when that saga was done, we as a collective audience were so connected with that group we had been in the lives of iron man and captain america and everybody else we had been i mean black widow and hawkeye we had been with them for years we were so invested in these characters and it took a really 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 long time i mean you look back iron man came out in 2008 avengers endgame finished the saga in 2019 that was 11 years of content and build-up to that. And so are they going to now bank on a new set of, of Avengers? Are we, are we talking another 11-year movie cycle to build up to another movie such as Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame? That's a lot to expect the fans, especially right now, 
with a lot of the the decline, a lot of the, let's just be realistic, we're kind of superheroed out. I, I really think there's a lot of fatigue right now. And so it's going to be kind of curious to see what Iger and the studios are going to come up with here in the next little bit to, to get the audiences back. Or are they just really going to have to shift and focus more on the Disney Plus content with all of the shows that are coming out and hope that that becomes the new tentpole, basically, to rely on those television shows. So we'll keep an eye on and see what they're going to come up with next. But Disney's Indiana Jones of the Dial of Destiny and Elemental are both still playing in theaters. We'll address that a little bit later when we go over the box office numbers for this past weekend. Well, Hollywood is pretty much shut down at this point. The Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, called SAG-AFTRA, have officially hit the picket lines joining the writers group. And during the press conference back on July the 13th, that was, they were announcing the news that they were going to go in, in on strike. The Guild leadership really delved deeper into one concerning issue that the performers had brought up during the contract negotiations, and that is the use of artificial intelligence. Now, it's no secret that protections against artificial intelligence-based technology using the actor's likenesses without their consent or compensation was one of the big sticking points during the negotiations. But during the strike announcement, SAG-AFTRA's national executive director, a man by the name of Duncan Crabtree Ireland really passionately went into more details about what the studios were offering in regards to AI. And it's really shocking what they were saying. So Crabtree Ireland was asked a question about what the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the organization that's bargaining on behalf of the Hollywood studios, what they, they were calling a groundbreaking AI proposal in order to protect performers' digital likenesses. A little tongue twister. His response was this, quote, in, what, in that groundbreaking AI proposal, they proposed that the background performers, you know, the extras, should be able to be scanned. They'll get paid for one day's of pay, one. And their companies should own that scan the image, their likeness, and for people to be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again, unquote. It's not an exaggeration to say that that proposal sounds like it was taken straight from a Black Mirror episode. And seriously, that was basically the premise of the season six episode called Joan is Awful. All right, so for those that don't watch Black Mirror, the episode in question goes kind of like this. Joan is Awful is the story of a woman who, at the end of each day, realizes with horror her actions have been folded into a biographical drama where all of her bad traits and regrettable decisions are played out on screen by Selma Hayek, except... As the episode goes along, we learn it's not Hayek at all. It's just an AI-generated likeness of her, commissioned by unethical executives that are working for a monolithic streaming platform. So while it might not be the driving force of the episode, AI will eventually replace all actors 
is cer certainly a theme that runs throughout the entire episode of Joan is Awful. AI had come up earlier in the press conference as well, and SAG-AFTRA's president, Fran Drescher, who has since been cheered on um, about her, she had a really impassioned speech about this whole thing. And she said as she announced the strike, the entire business model has been changed by streaming and by AI. So if we don't stand tall right now, we're all going to be in jeopardy. You cannot change the business model as much as it's been changed and not expect the contract to change too. So SAG after strike, they went, it commenced on midnight on July the 12th, and it's marked the first time that they've hit the picket lines in conjunction with the Writers Guild of America since 1960. And speaking of the strike, Ron Perlman has now kind of gotten involved a little bit more in the spotlight here. He had to clarify some really recent heated remarks that he made about a studio executive after the strike went into place. So the Hellboy actor issued a very ominous warning to an anonymous source who told Deadline that the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers want the strike to carry on until union members start losing their homes. This is what he was told that uh, by somebody anonymous that the the members are willing to wait the strike out until people started losing everything. Perlman told the executive to, quote, be careful and that there's a lot of ways to lose your house. Now, this was an Instagram live post. It's been since deleted. But later in the day, Perlman explained in a follow-up Instagram video that he doesn't wish anybody any harm. He said, quote, with the announcement of the actors going out on strike this morning, I took to Instagram Live to give a background of my experience as a Guild member and to give some of my reactions to the current events while we find ourselves in this situation. In the aftermath of that, there's been a lot of reaction, mainly because at one point, admittedly, I got quite heated because I was talking about a quote from one of the executives on the other side of the negotiations talking about how they planned to not even begin negotiating until writers and actors started losing their houses and their apartments. And you can imagine my reaction to somebody wishing that kind of harm on people in the very same industry that they call their own and would engender a response. So let me make something very clear right now. I don't wish anyone any harm. I hope the a-hole who made that comment also doesn't wish anybody any harm but when you start going around and saying we're not even going to bargain, bargain with these bleeping bleep bleeps until they start bleeping bleeding and their families start bleeding, I mean, if you want to talk about some of the crap that makes people so cynical and so ticked off with our current climate, I mean, this strike is just sort of, it's a symptom of a struggle that's way bigger than the strike itself. It's a symptom of the soullessness of corporate America and how everything has become corporatized in this country, unquote. So what do you say we work this out in a nice, peaceful... Oh, crap. He did go on to explain that corporations only care about one thing, and that's quarterly profits and the shareholders and the stockholders, and also added that when you co-opt something that deals in beauty and the human experience, like film and television does, like any of the fine arts do, but it's being run by people who only care about one thing, and that's money. It makes for some pretty strange bedfellows. But still, 
Perlman stepped back and he did call for unity. And he said he's looking forward to seeing what both sides of the standoff can bring to the table. So we all just got to get along and try to understand that you have your value in giving us the resources we need to make content. content, And we have our value as the storytellers because of the effect we have on people when we tell our stories beautifully and properly on the people that come to see them. He did encourage the American Motion Pictures Group to maintain a degree of humanity in the negotiations going forward. It can't be all about your Porsche and your stock prices. There's got to be dignity if you're going to hold a mirror up and reflect human experiences, which is what we do as actors and, and writers. And not just us, the drivers, the camera guys, the costume, the makeup people, hair people, etc. Do you want them to lose their houses too? Is that what you're after? Just to break everybody? That's really sad. That's probably one of the most passionate commentaries that I've heard or seen in regards to the strike. You know, and that's saying something considering the contents of what Fran Drescher said when she made the announcement that they were indeed going on strike. Disney had their premiere of the new Haunted Mansion movie this weekend, but with the strike, how in the world did they manage it? Welcome, foolish mortals, to the Haunted Mansion. Well, long story short, Disney used their theme park characters in the Haunted Mansion premiere in place of the film's actors for the first red carpet event since the SAG after strike. So as reported by Variety, the Haunted Mansion world premiere just went ahead without its stars, leaving the gaggle of Disney characters to stroll the red carpet. You had... Uh, Mickey and Minnie made a, made a showing, the Evil Queen made a showing, and the director, Justin Simeon, said, it's just so sad and disappointing. But I'm not disappointed in this cast. I'm disappointed in the conditions that have brought about this situation. And look, their works speak for itself in this movie, but I really wanted to speak to them too, unquote. Now, because of the strike, because of the SAG after strike, the Guild members are prevented from undertaking any promotional activity for their work, and that includes the red carpet premieres. So that means the Haunted Mansion stars of Lakeith Stanfield, Tiffany Haddish, Danny DeVito, Rosario Dawson, Jamie Lee Curtis, and more were not expected to attend. So Disney's like, well, we're rolling out the red carpet regardless. And honestly, it's thought that Disney went ahead with this because they would have lost a lot of revenue from their corporate sponsors if this world premiere event did not go ahead. It was a two-hour event, so and it marked the first major studio premiere since the strike started back on July the 13th. And it's offering a pretty haunting look at what we can expect in the coming months. No cast interviews, no phone calls, just a cute but sad lineup of costume characters in place of the usual Hollywood glitz and glamour. Some people called it a welcome change, but it just depends. I mean, Disney has a a huge, hand, like 100-year animated legacy to lean on when it comes to replacing their actors for these events. How many other studios have that? How are the other studios going to tackle their upcoming world premieres? One of the biggest ones that people are going to be looking at it, the movie's not coming out until, I believe it was December the 15th. It's the new Wonka movie. It's the behind-the-scenes look at, at Willy Wonka, the character itself. It's going to be starring uh, Timothy Chalamet, and it's going to have Hugh Grant as the Oompa Loompas. I don't know how they're doing that one. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I could just imagine a red carpet event with him walking out maybe in a costume, and you got the Oompa Loompa songs and everything. 
if the strike is going to continue on through the end of the year, we're not going to see any of that unless they come up with some sort of digital representation, which goes back into that whole AI thing again. We're not going to get back into just yet. So we'll see how this goes. Disney is able to put on at least a good production without the use of the SAG members. But who else is going to be able to lean on that kind of thing? I mean, I don't know. Maybe if Illumination's coming out with something later this year, we'll see a whole bunch of minions pop up. But we'll see. absolutely love the Pikmin soundtrack. It's just such a cute, nice, relaxing soundtrack. I mean, what do you really expect when, you, when you're playing a game about these little plant-like creatures running around doing doing puzzles and such? I mean, we've seen Pikmin. Pikmin came out in 2001 and the last true release, I mean, we had the mobile spinoff come out in 2021, but Pikmin 3 came out for the Wii U back in 2013. So it's been 10 years since we've seen a full installment release but hang on to your hats guys pikmin 4 is on the horizon but the fans are starting to take over new york city's times square in celebration pikmin 4 will be out on july the 21st and to celebrate the release of the fourth main entry in this franchise the fans are just showing the world just how much they love pikmin what are they doing they're going out and they're buying 15-second slots, advertisement slots, on the billboards in Times Square. This was first spotted by GamesRadar, but the Pikmin fandom is holding a what they call the Times Square takeover of over in New York City, New York, using TSX Live, which is a mobile app that allows you to upload a photo or short video on a Times Square billboard just for $40. So fans are plunking down 40 bucks to purchase advertisement space on TSX Live to promote the game in this most unconventional and yet extremely hilarious way. So one prime example includes a Twitter user by the name of Dream Pachi, who used his 15-second slot to share a video to not only promote the game, but it also contained a video of Pikmin protagonist Olimar twerking. Like I said, he's twerking. And as you'd expect, that image has just become a huge popular meme in the fandom. I expect no less, and I am proud of all of you. Now, while the video of the twerking Olimar is certainly the one getting the most attention, other Pikmin fans have been contributing to the takeover. YouTube Spec uploaded a video of a compilation of some sightings of Pikmin-related content appearing on the billboards and other fans have been responding with memes about the Times Square takeover. The Pikmin community is just, they're known for their distinct sense of humor, and they're finally getting a chance to shine amid the release of Pikmin 4. This sequel is, was finally announced last September during Nintendo Direct Showcase. Aside from being the first Pikmin game to release on Nintendo's hybrid console, this is the first installment in a series that's going to allow players to create their own playable character. And in a preview of Pikmin 4, it was noted that the game tweaks its formula into a fresh and fun yet familiar experience. Just don't expect a twerking Olimar. Maybe. Probably. Yeah, we're probably going to see it. Yeah. 
We've been following the saga of the FTC trying to block the merger between Microsoft and Activision Blizzard. And they've been going through the court system and they ended up losing a request for a preliminary injunction last week to block the Microsoft acquisition until the conclusion of a separate FTC administrative case. They appealed the decision and now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has denied that request for the emergency relief to prevent the closing. The deadline for Microsoft to close this deal on Activision Blizzard is July the 18th. So it looks like they're kind of out of ammunition at this point. And now we're waiting to see what's going to happen over in Europe because there is an injunction over there that Microsoft has to deal with in order to finish this closing. But now the Federal Trade Commission chair, Lena Kahn, is being questioned by the House Judiciary Committee. So not only are they in court, they're now in front of Congress. In a hearing called the Oversight of the Federal Trade Commission, Representative Kevin Kiley questioned Lena Kahn on why the agency is spending a ton of money on these merger trials despite having a losing track record. Why is the agency spending so much taxpayer money? Hello, I like money. On these merger trials, especially with this ongoing legal fight with Microsoft. Kevin Kiley said, you seem to be losing quite a bit. And I don't say that to be disrespectful, but these are, after all, taxpayer funds. You are now 0-4 in merger trials. The average win rate for the FTC in the modern era is around 75%. So I have to ask, why are you losing so much? Uh, end quote. Now, earlier last week, the FTC was denied that injunction, and then they did the appeal on July the 12th. So outside of that trial, one of the other three merger cases that Representative Kylie was referring to was the FTC losing the meta acquisition of the VR fitness company within. Um, unlike that case, though, FTC didn't appeal that decision. They went ahead and let that one go. Then Representative Kylie also questioned Ms. Khan about the legal bout the agency currently has with Microsoft. So he wanted to delve into that one. He specifically referred to the recent ver verdict by Judge Corley that pointed out how the FTC even just failed to show how Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision Blizzard would be anti-competitive. He said the court not only rejected your assertion of a likely anti-competitive effect, but found just the opposite. The record evidence points to more consumer access. So why should Americans have faith in your judgment when this judge says that you're so far off the mark? Unquote. Now, with the, the FTC appealing and losing that decision, the agency would need to be granted that emergency relief. They lost it. And now, as of right now, on the U.S. side of things, Microsoft is free to complete their acquisition. But for her part, Lena Khan was pretty unflappable in the face of Congress. She, she answered her questions. Uh, she really is just undaunted by her office's share of losses and counting the no wind is too small to collect. Uh, over the past couple decades, the FTC has developed a reputation for trafficking in little more than wrist slap fines and self-congratulatory press releases and feigned helplessness in the face of the tech industry conglomeration. But atop the regulatory agency that has been at times defanged by Congress and a revolving door lobby, Khan just seems hell-bent on proving that public watchdogs still do have teeth. So... For her part, she stood up, she answered questions, 
Uh, it does look like this is a lost case for the FTC, so the merger will go ahead and go forward. Not merger, it's really an acquisition. So Microsoft will acquire Activision Blizzard pretty much on the 18th. It looks like it's all going well. Um, so we're going to see how that's going to have an impact, and we'll see what the FTT FTC decides to take on next. The entire Deus Ex series has just such a, a hauntingly beautiful soundtrack. I just It gives me chills every time I listen to it. Uh, Deus Ex is a video game series that debuted back in 2000. But in 2011, Deus Ex Human Revolution gave us the character of Adam Jensen. And it was announced recently that Deus Ex was getting a prequel game. But as of right now, it's missing its main voice actor. Now, the character of Adam Jensen, he's a mechanically augmented protagonist, starting with Deus Ex Human Revolu Revolution, in which he works as the chief of security for the biotech company Seraph Industries. And then in Deus Ex Mankind Divided, he was an operative of Task Force 29, who was, it was aiming to hunt down and capture augmented terrorists while also working for the Juggernaut Collective. So in addition to being a major character in the game, he also has a role in the tie-in comics and the novels, such as the Human Revolution comics, Children's Crusade, and Black Light. He is portrayed by voice actor Elias Tufexis. Now, Elias has been pretty busy in recent years. He showed up as a space spy Kenzo in The Expanse. Uh, he was also in Star Trek Discovery, and he's recently played the Penguin in Gotham Knights, among some other roles. But according to the actor... He has not heard anything about reprising his role of Adam. Tufexis wrote on Twitter, quote, Yeah, as happy as I am to be busy, I wish I was even more busy on a new Deus Ex. I am not under any NDA for Deus Ex because, well, no one's called me about it. Truly, end quote. As PC Gamer News lead Andy Chalk put it, this one hurts. And like J. Anthony Frank as J.C. Denton in the original game, Tufexis just really did an amazing job squeezing warmth and humor out of this trench coat, night sunglass wearing at night, big lug of a guy who knocks guys out and hides them in vents for a living. You know, could be worse. I never asked for this. This is by no means a death knell for Jensen. I mean, back in November, sources told Bloomberg reporter J Jason Schreier that a new Deus Ex was just really, really early in development. So fast forward nine months and you could maybe knock off just one of those varies when it comes to the alleged next Deus Ex's development process. I mean, while Tufexis may have a central role in it and a lot of lines to record if he was the protagonist of a new Deus Ex, actually recording the lines comes really late in the game's development after the script's been finalized. So he may very well be contacted. We just, we, we haven't heard from it yet. And at the same time, it would probably never be too early to start looping in and locking down that, you know, central recognized talent. And who's to say that the next Deus Ex game wouldn't actually be a reboot? I mean, given modern development cycles, it could very well be a gap of like 10 years or more between the previous game back in 2016 of Mankind Divided and the launch of this next project and oh that really makes me feel old but that would be a really really big shame though i mean mankind divided really felt like the middle part of a trilogy that just didn't get its chance to be finished 
Now, Eidos Montreal's most recent release was Guardians of the Galaxy, and that was a game that surprised us because of how witty and warm it was at the time of peak Marvel oversaturation. We've talked about this. People were really getting tired of the whole superhero thing. But the studio changed hands from Square Enix to the Embracer Group last August, and it doesn't seem to have been affected by the recent wave of layoffs and studio closures at that publisher. And I did talk about the Embracer Group a couple of weeks ago and that they were downsizing a lot of stuff. So here's hoping that we get to see Adam Jensen come back on our, on our computer screen. Um, I thought Elias did an amazing job. He's got a very iconic voice, and it's just fantastic, and it fit the characters so well. So here's hoping that maybe in the future, the next couple weeks, someone gets a phone call. Developer Bungie just won a huge victory against the gamers, but this one's actually kind of a good thing. So Bungie has won almost $500,000 in damages against a Destiny 2 player who harassed one of its community managers. This was preceded by defendant James Comer being incensed over fan art by a black community member being given the spotlight. But Comer then sent racist and abusive calls to the manager and his wife. And in an effort to intimidate them, he also arranged for unsolicited pizza orders to be delivered to their home. Quote, the choice to highlight work by a fan of color made Comer mad on or about June 2nd of 2022. Comer then started his campaign of racist terrorism against the Doe family and Bungie. This is according to court documents, by the way. Comer spent hours that day carpet bombing the Doe's with racist texts and voice messages. Not satisfied, he then decided to show them that he knew where they lived and could assault them there. Comer used an anonymous number to place a cash-on-delivery order with Domino's Pizza for a virtually inedible, smelly pizza to be delivered. Now, Washington State Court ruled in Bungie's favor, and Comer is now expected to pay over $489,000 in damages. This includes expenses related to the case, Bungie's efforts to protect its employees with security measures for the couple, and the fees from Bungie's legal team for prosecuting him. Now, this victory is a pretty important one for companies in general. This is setting a new legal precedent that's going to allow for greater protective measures to be taken for victims of cyber-stalking. Now, in a Twitter thread by Catherine Tucson, the paralegal highlighted uh, the significance of the judgment and how this establishes that there can be consequences for trolls and harassment especially when such actions can escalate towards acts of real-world violence. Bungie has never shied away from flexing its legal muscle in recent months. Now, this is in addition to protecting its staff. The company has also taken aim at cheaters and alleged leakers in the community. The studio just recently won a $6.7 million judgment, I believe it was, against Lava Cheats in U.S. District Court, and then it won a similar lawsuit against veteran cheats for about $12 million. Look, harassment in any form is never okay. So I'm really glad to see that these harassers are now being held responsible for their actions. And hopefully a judgment like this will really help deter people from taking those actions. I mean, we've seen people do swatting, um, the harassment. Keyboard warriors have kind of really kind of taken off and feel that, you know, they're safe. Well... Here you have somebody who went a little bit too far and now they're being punished for it. So maybe a judgment like this can help stop people from being harassed for 
doing what? Highlighting artwork from a community member? Okay, maybe I'm not a fan of this person that did the artwork. Who cares? It's none of my business. I mean, congratulations. You got your spotlight. That's fantastic. And I, uh, Mr. Comer, I, I really hope this was worth it. You now owe Bungie almost a half a million dollars. Uh, maybe this will deter somebody. I doubt it, but I really hope it does because I really don't like seeing harassment or hearing about these cases. It's just, it's a sad situation when you see all these companies that are having to, quote, step up their security measures to protect their employees because some rando fan decides, I don't agree with what you're doing. So take note, guys, less harassment, more fun. Thank you. He posts his thirst traps in a leather-bound album. His DMs have postage. He gets the early bird special anytime he wants. If you call him, he'll answer the phone. He doesn't have gray hair. He has wisdom highlights. Florida wants to retire and move to him. He's Gary. And I'm your first golden bachelor. Yep, y'all heard that right. At long last, it is finally time for The Golden Bachelor. After years and years and years of waiting for The Bachelor's franchise senior citizen spinoff, the first teaser of the new series is actually finally here. And in ABC's first promo, which was exclusively revealed by Variety, the franchise's signature red rose turns gold for its golden man. And the quick trailer is set to the tune of This Magic Moment. Yep, that's the one. Now, meet 71-year-old retired restaurateur Gary Turner. He's the first ever to star in the new senior dating show, The Golden Bachelor. Now, on July 17th, ABC unveiled the leading man with the cheeky promo we heard and his appearance on Good Morning America. Uh, Gary has two daughters who encouraged him to sign up for the show and told Good Morning America he's lived his life by the motto, don't give up, there's always possibilities. He also believes that his late wife, Tony, who passed six years ago after 43 years of marriage, would approve of his decision to be the first ever, ever Golden Bachelor. He said, quote, we always told each other when one of us goes, we want the other one to be happy. She's up there rooting for me, unquote. Holy cow, 43 years. That is absolutely fantastic. I know they were, according to what I was reading, they were high school sweethearts. That's a long time to be with somebody. And I understand six years, you've had some time to process grief and and to move on. And I think it's pretty awesome that the daughters are the ones that are spearheading this. Uh, So that gives their explicit approval. So, you know, that's fantastic. Good family dynamic there. The Golden Bachelor will air on Mondays starting this fall at 10 p.m. Seems a little late considering their core demographic, but I digress. This will follow Jerry embarking on the journey to find love. Kind of flips the formula on the Bachelor franchise, which for more than two decades has just starred 20-something and barely 30-something singles. Which makes me wonder, are they going to have a a golden girl, a bachelorette? Now, Ma, remember, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I think I crossed that line when I got a date. I don't know about y'all, but I totally watch a Bachelorette Golden Edition with the Sophia Lett character. But anywho, 
The Golden Bachelor marks the latest expansion in the Bachelor franchise, which has aired 60 seasons of television since it premiered back in 2002, and that includes the flagship series of The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, and Bachelor in Paradise. The casting calls for a senior citizen Bachelor had been airing during The Bachelor show for the last several years, keeping viewers wondering when or if the show would ever happen. Disney's top unscripted TV executive, Rob Mills, previously spoke to Variety about the excitement behind the series. He said, quote, some of the casting interviews we got, they were just so touching. It's such a different way of doing The Bachelor because these people are just at a totally different place in their lives. There is an interesting thing about people who have hit the other end of the spectrum, who've lived their lives, they've raised their kids. Some have been widowed or divorced or maybe some have never been in love. We thought that that would bring an interesting dynamic to The Bachelor. Definitely sounds like it's going to be a different take on The Bachelor series. So good luck out there, Gary. We're rooting for you. Assassin's Creed Mirage is going to be coming out on October 12th of 2023, and Ubisoft has just announced a very interesting tie-in with optics from the firm Owo. So now you can pay around $500 for a Mirage-themed version of the Owo skin suit. Now, this haptic top looks kind of like a padded t-shirt. It operates wirelessly and allows the user to feel sensations on 10 areas of the upper body and the arms. Now, if you're wondering where the name comes from, it's actually pretty simple. Owo is the sound someone makes as they realize their haptic suit is about to vaporize them. The press release booms, now you will not impersonate Basim, but you will be Basim. Which is kind of a backhand to all of us impersonators playing the game normally, but... Assassin's Creed Mirage Special Edition includes a digital copy of the game and promises exclusive sensations never felt before, which to me sounds a little like something a demon would say before kicking off the torture session, right? Owo lists a whole range of sensations that the suit can simulate, including axe, A-X-E, and the worrying sound of severe abdominal wound. Not a fan so far. It also says getting shot, getting shot with exit wound, and getting stabbed in the chest. Tis but a scratch, I hope. Now stand back, I gotta practice my stabbing. (laughs) The Assassin's Creed vest also comes with this ominous warning. Quote, don't let your enemies get too close or you will feel the consequences. Unquote. I mean, all right, Ubisoft, come on. We're, we're all getting on a bit here. Is there any world in which I want to feel the impact of an enemy punching me in a game? It's really hard to imagine anything worse than that. But anyway, if you can't wait to have your physical form encased with a software-controlled exosuit that simulates physical impact, that you can go keep an eye on that OWO website. I mean, what really could go wrong, right? Amusingly enough, the, the companies involved can't stop calling this thing exclusive, and honestly, I have to agree. 
getting the crap kicked out of you by the suit you're wearing sounds like a pretty exclusive thing to me. I got some good news for Call of Duty fans. Call of Duty will remain on PlayStation even after Xbox buys Activision. I know, I know. That's actually pretty exciting. Sony and Microsoft have signed a binding agreement to keep Call of Duty on the PlayStation ecosystem following the completion of the Xbox Activision deal. In a tweet, Microsoft Gaming CEO Phil Spencer confirmed that a deal has been agreed by the two rival platform holders to keep Call of Duty cross-platform should Xbox's acquisition of Activision Blizzard close. But it isn't clear at this early stage whether this is a 10-year deal to ensure Call of Duty remains widely available, which was similar to the one that Microsoft signed with Nintendo, or if it's something else entirely. Now, Sony reportedly rejected such an agreement just last year, so this information will surely be provided coming up in the days ahead. We just haven't heard yet. Still, this is the conclusion of a really bitter, months-long battle between the two companies. I mean, Call of Duty has been at the center of Sony's concerns surrounding the merger, with the publisher arguing that this behemoth franchise being controlled by Microsoft would lessen competition within the industry. So the signing of this agreement just signals that the two parties have found some common ground in the days following the FTC's loss to block the merger in court. Now, Microsoft President Brad Smith also commented on the agreement, and he took to Twitter with the following statement. From day one of this acquisition, we have been committed to addressing the concerns of regulators, platform, and game developers, and the consumers. So even after we cross the finish line for this deal's approval, we will remain focused on ensuring that Call of Duty remains available on more platforms and for more consumers than ever before. That's heartening news. Let's hope we see a really good, similar to the 10-year deal that was rejected before. I'd really like to see something like that. That would keep that game widely available, the popularity coming. Then honestly, look, Call of Duty is just a fun game. So we'd love to see it on multiple platforms. So have fun out there and good news coming out from Microsoft and Sony. Famed Titanic director James Cameron is currently in talks to direct the Titanic submersible disaster film. Or is he? That's the rumor, but what does Cameron say for himself? Now, James Cameron has visited the wreckage of the Titanic more than 30 times and even directed the Oscar-winning romance about the doomed vessel, but he's not planning on exploring the latest disaster connected to the ship that couldn't sink. The director has vehemently denied rumors that he's in talks to helm the feature about the Ocean Gate submarine that's believed to have imploded on the deep sea voyage to explore the Titanic wreck, sadly killing all five of its passengers. In a very blunt post on Twitter, James Cameron wrote, I don't respond to offensive rumors in the media usually, but I need to now. I am not in talks about an Ocean Gate film, nor will I ever, unquote. It's not necessarily surprising that some would believe that Cameron would become attached to the Ocean Gate film because you know there's going to be one, but Cameron won't be in charge of it. The 68-year-old filmmaker has become kind of a public expert on all things Titanic 
ever since he was in production on the 1997 epic film. And after authorities discovered likely human remains from the Titan submersible, Cameron appeared for an interview on ABC News to criticize Oceangate and offer his thoughts on the disaster. Quote, A number of the top players in the deep submergence engineering community even wrote letters to the company saying that what they were doing was just too experimental to carry passengers and that it needed to be certified. I'm struck by the similarity of the Titanic disaster itself, where the captain was repeatedly warned about ice ahead of his ship, and yet he steamed at full speed into an ice field on a moonless night, and many people died as a result. And for us, it's a very similar tragedy where the warnings went unheeded, unquote. Back in June, the U.S. Coast Guard discovered new debris around the Titanic shipwreck, and within hours, it was confirmed that those on board the missing Titan submersible were believed to have died in a catastrophic implosion of the vessel. As of late, James Cameron, of course, has had his hands full with the population of Pandora and is currently tinkering away on the third Avatar movie after the box office success of The Way of Water, which was the second movie. The threequel is set to hit theaters on December 19th of 2025 with two more follow-ups slated to follow after. So there we have it. If there's going to be a documentary, and I'm almost positive there's going to be, and someone may already be working on it, I'm sh James Cameron just will not be directing it. He wants nothing to do with it. And I completely understand his viewpoint on that, like that he's considered to be a, a civilian expert with all of his dives that he's done and the studying he's done. Um, so, you know, definitely somebody to be listened to. And if he wants no part of it, there may be a really good reason why. Now it's time for the weekly box office review. Tom Cruise has just shown that almost nothing is impossible. He has been on a mission to encourage fans to go to the movies to see not just his latest Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, but all of the movies coming out this summer. He's like the Hollywood cheerleader right now. And his efforts may have helped with the seventh installment of the Mission Impossible franchise, which premiered last Wednesday, and it came in at number one on the box office charts. Now, while the thriller was the movie event of the weekend, and it has so far been really well-received by viewers, the $56 million that it grossed domestically on its three-day opening weekend actually came in below expectations. There seems to be a pattern with Hollywood right now. The movie ticked upwards to $80 million upon its five-day opening, and it brought in $235 million worldwide. Pretty good numbers. Mission Impossible 6 grossed $61 million during its 2018 three-day opening weekend, so Dead Reckoning felt just short of Mission Impossible 6. Tom Cruise, who he has starred in the Mission Impossible franchise since it first came out in 1996, he saw really great success last summer when Top Gun Maverick came out, and that became his first film to cross the $1 billion mark at the worldwide box office. But even Tom Cruise isn't immune to this summer's box office slump. Dead Reckoning is joining the other summer blockbusters such as The Flash, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and Disney's latest animated feature, Elemental, in clocking underwhelming box office figures during their respective opening weekends. Now, Oppenheimer and Barbie, Barbenheimer, 
is coming out on the same day this week with a very impressive amount of buzz for the double-featured Barbenheimer event. So the hope that this bummer summer at the box office can turn itself around. The surprise hit, The Sound of Freedom, rose to the number two spot for the week. Insidious Red Door debuted last week at number one in its opening weekend, and it dropped to number three. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny fell to number four. It's the third week on the charts with Elemental, Pixar's latest, holding steady at number five. And that wraps up the top five of the weekend. And now for something different. Weird and offbeat news lovers unite. I have stories for you. The Titan Arum, or Corpse Flower, has become a rock star in the plant world for its unpredictable displays and, more notoriously, the putrid stench of rotting flesh that it emanates. Well, okay, so what is this thing? The very large flowering plant, it's related actually to the calla lily, and in fact, it looks like a supersized and more macabre version with a very large central spike surrounded by a frilly maroon skirt of a leaf. Now, the Titan Arum is native only to the Indonesian island of Sumatra, but it has become even more difficult to see in the wild because of habitat loss. So in the last few decades, advances in technology and horticultural knowledge have allowed these botanical gardens to cultivate this corpse flower a lot more widely. If you're not familiar with why the flower has this distinctive name, when the corpse flower unfurls, tiny male and female flowers at the base of the large central spike start to emit this putrid odor. Think of rotting meat or really bad, stinky laundry of people that play sports. The Titan Arum has a fairly long and unpredictable flowering cycle. It really honestly can take a decade before the flower shows for the first time. Even mature plants go years in between the blooms. So essentially, they just work on their own schedule, which is really part of the excitement for viewers. Well, okay, so what's the big deal about this plant right now? Well, right now, there are two corpse flowers that are blooming out in California. One of them is located at San Francisco's Conservatory of Flowers, and the other is at San Diego's Botanical Gardens. The Conservatory's corpse flower has the nickname of Scarlet, and it last bloomed in 2019. She began blooming again earlier this week and is still standing tall for many visitors at San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Uh, San Diego's flower du jour last bloomed in 2021 and is already more noticeably shriveled than the peak event earlier this week. So that's because the corpse flower, the blooms are really brief. They, They shine and stink just for moments in time, typically only lasting for just a couple of days. Ari Novi, who's the president and CEO at the San Diego Botanical Garden, spoke to NPR's Daniel Estrin about witnessing the, what he called the symphony of stench in real time. Quote, the way I describe it is it smells like if you took your teenager's dirty laundry And put it in a big black garbage bag. And then you add it in some hamburger meat, maybe a little fish, garlic, Parmesan cheese. Leave it on the side of the road for on a really hot desert day for about 24 hours. And then come back to it. And I'm not exaggerating. That's really what it smells like. Why did it evolve to smell like this? Okay, so, you know, nature has its own way of taking care of itself sometimes. So 
why did the evolution of this flower come to this? Well, uh, there's a lot of insects out in the wild that really like the smell of rotting flesh or other rotting odors. And these insects can pollinate plants. And there's several plants that kind of use, utilize this strategy of using this kind of stench that humans find repulsive to attract a bunch of insects who love the smell and help them pollinate and help them grow. So, you know, a nice little evolution adaptation technique to instead smelling beautiful and attractive to everybody. Everybody just wants to stay away from this flower and so the insects can pollinate it properly. You know, stinky plants one love too, right? So check out the Twitter pages of both the gardens and the conservatory to see pictures of this really impressive flower. It won't be around for much longer and who knows when it will flower next. So really cool, little interesting story. Just, you know, don't breathe too deep. Electo is a YouTuber and a young man of a lot of different little talents. And usually these people in these channels kind of drive me a little crazy, but I actually like this one. He's got a good sense of humor. He's got an awesome assistant called Joe, and he happens to be a pretty good technical engineer too. All good things. And that engineering know-how has now been put to use to produce a writable Minecraft pig. Who knows why he decided on this project, though it's kind of a similar vein as some of his previous work, like he built a working Among Us imposter a while back, but he goes for it with just such gusto, and he breaks down what looks like a pretty lengthy building process and it had a few false starts in it into just a few minutes, and then in, ends up nicknaming the pig Hamburghini. I love it. The most impressive part of the pig, honestly, for me, is that Electo stuck, he stuck an IR sensor into the head of the pig, which can then detect the 3D printed carrot in front of it. So Piggy chases his dinner. And then, of course, you know, we got to test and see, can this pig fly? So the pig is tested at various power levels. And even at 60%, that gave us a fairly top, impressive top speed at about 16 miles per hour. But when Electo cranked that thing all the way to 100%, it hit easily 20 miles per hour. And honestly, I think it probably could have gone even faster. Well, naturally, Electo put the pig to good use by trying to order McDonald's through the drive-thru while on the pig, and he was denied. And then he ended up racing our good friend Joe across several heats. I am going to give it to the pig here, though. Sadly, there was somewhat of an abrupt end to our speedster's adventures, but... I mean, it's also always kind of awesome to see elements of games that bleed into the real world, even if it's just a few fan projects that go, you know, as far as this one did. Which, look, let's face it. If Mojang actually officially licensed a writable Minecraft pig, it would be an instant bestseller. Our streets would be filled full of children screaming and laughing, riding these blocky pigs and that actually just sounds a little bit more nightmarish than I originally thought. Mojang, you probably may not want to necessarily do this one. Just saying. But apparently, according to this, pigs can fly. So 
we talked a little bit today about the not so golden age at Disney right now, but you know, at least we have golden bachelors. Uh, we have Pikmin taking over Times Square, a stabby haptic suit, some corpse flowers, and the Hamburghini. A scenic and overly fragrant journey, right? Well, thank you guys for joining me today. I do want to remind you that I do include the links to all of my sources in the comments so you can see what we see and more. Also, don't forget to drop a comment or send us an email if there is a story that you want us to cover. Join us next time as we check out the latest in entertainment news. Remember, stay comfy in the starter zone. This is Amanda. Good luck and have fun. Listening to the Starter Zone with Amanda. I am Raven. We thank you for your time and support. Without you, we simply would not be. Please hit that like and subscribe button and visit us on Facebook and Twitter at The Starter Zone. Have we missed something? Have something to say? Leave us a comment or send us audio clips for your chance to be on the show. We invite you to come back for more exciting news and commentary on the world around you. See you next time in The Starter Zone.